Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Is that music, it, that has a sort of New Orleans sound to it. I wonder if that's uh, in honor of our guest of honor. Uh, welcome to The Scramble. This is when we come back from the weekend and try to figure out what happened uh, over the weekend and what we should do about it. I, I was thinking that, you know, people often do say, well, you, you, guys, you talk about Trump too much. And my current response is, I can't prove it, but I'm betting that the Huns mainly talked about Attila. You know, I mean, I think basically what else was there really to talk about? All right, so we're really excited today because obviously we do this show with uh, lots of different uh, reporters from all over the world and news analysts, but uh, we've got a superstar today, a commentator on NPR's Morning Edition and ABC News, uh, formerly a congressional correspondent and analyst for NPR, uh, author of several books, including most recently Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington, 1948 to 1968. I don't even have to say the name now, you all. And she could just start talking, and I wouldn't have to say anything. You'd know who it was. Koki Roberts is uh, joining us now in advance of an event she's doing uh, in Hartford later this week. We'll tell you about that in just a second. But Koki Roberts, welcome to the show. We are so excited. Well, I'm excited to be with you, Colin. Thanks for having me. So we're just going to do, as uh, as Koki Roberts does very well and does very frequently, <laughs> we are going to run through a, a bunch of topics. But there's one to which I... Uh, Betsy Kaplan and I directed uh, your attention, and that is this. We'll start with the story at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, uh, where Jackie Helbert is. She's now suing the university for firing her from the campus radio station. Uh, she claims she was fired for reporting a story of public interest that did not sit well with lawmakers. She traveled with the uh, Cleveland, Tennessee High School Gay Straight Alliance to interview some Republican state senators. Uh, she was carrying with her a 22 inch fuzzy mic. These microphones look like. Uh, they look like one of the Muppets got turned into a microphone or something like that. Uh, she had uh, her press credentials around her neck. She was wearing headphones, as operators of microphones tend to do, some kind of recording equipment at her belt. Somehow or other, the people that she talked to, these legislators, claimed that they didn't know they were talking to a reporter. That is the nominal basis on which she got fired. But what's being reported pretty widely is that what they did do is go to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, which basically uh, is the, the, the sponsoring and owning entity for this radio station, threaten it with defunding unless something was done. Um, and so, Koki, obviously, we don't want to get too far ahead of a lawsuit, but this does raise some interesting questions, including whether or not there should be firewalls between a state-supported entity like uh, uh, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and something that we want to have be as free a free press as can be. Well, sure. Uh, it raises lots and lots of questions. One of the, first of all, is apparently it's the university that fired this reporter, not the radio station. So that in itself is uh, a huge uh, red flag uh, about journalism and about the ability of that station to ever be trusted by its listeners. Because if uh, people think that the reporters are being censored 
by state legislators because the state legislature gives the university money and the university gives the station money, you know, you're you're really in a bad place there. And as you said, Colin, she she did uh, she she had all of the look of a reporter apparently, but it's also true regardless of that what are these state legislators thinking? I mean, every kid in that room had probably had a cell phone, and the idea that you can have a private conversation in 2017, I mean, that just doesn't happen. And so the you know, the, the fact that a, a legislator was embarrassed because they, he was actually quoted accurately mm-hmm. <laughs> is, uh, is just absurd. I also place this. I mean, I, I think there's two interesting subtexts to it. One of it, one of this, one of them is that all the people, all the politicians who complain about this are male. She's a very young woman, basically starting out her career in public radio. The person who fired her was not, in fact, an executive of the radio of the radio station, but effectively part of the chancellor, yeah, right. the university, no, and, and actually yeah. part of the marketing department of the university. Uh, you know, it just go, get, goes from bad to worse. And, and um, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it gets to, as the NPR statement about this said, it gets to uh, the heart of the issue of the fact that, that uh, licensees, the people who own the license um, of any station, should not be in the position, nor should politicians, nor should funders uh, be in the position of having any say over actual news content. Um, and it's one of the reasons, I'll make a little pitch here, it's one of the reasons why public support is the most important support. I mean, that's why we do these these dreadful fund drives uh, to ask for support of listeners like you, because uh, that is by far the least tainted support that you can have. Now, NPR has all kinds of firewalls, but that gets much harder at a local station that apparently this station gets about a half a million dollars from the uh, university. That's a whole lot of money for a local station. And um, and so they they didn't feel like they had any wherewithal to, to fight it. And that really does put you in a position where your credibility just gets questioned all up and down the line. Right. One, the one thing, you know, you and I have been in journalism both for a long time. I started, well, I've been in for a whole lot longer than you, I'm sure. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But, um, uh, well, you probably, you probably weren't born. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started out in the newspaper business. And in the newspaper business, there always is, you know, at least there always was. And I realize there's erosion of all types across the spectrum. But, you know, there typically was a firewall between the publisher's office, and you know, which handled most of the business of the newspaper, right. and, and the editorial staff, the, everybody right. who was reporting. And, and editing copy and and you know where I started out too I mean it, it was rigidly enforced the only se- exception was uh, Irish step dancing uh, academies because <laughs> they tended to complain a lot to the publisher so the publisher did come out to me and said one time and said please don't write anymore for any reason about Irish step dancing academies uh, <laughs> because they all call the other ones that you didn't write about all call me and complain but That's very fun. where was this this is here right here in Connecticut so um, 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 so you know I mean is there a lot of Irish step dancing going on fiercely competitive apparently i see and it's uh huh. it's like so you you sort of stepped right into it so to speak sorry yeah, it's i'm a, sorry I couldn't it was very it. good uh <laughs> yeah no very sort of I, there's the betty davis uh, academy of irish step dancing and the watch joan, out now you're gonna get in trouble again <laughs> and the joan crawford <laughs> 
uh, Academy. They fight furiously. Anyway, but but anyway, that's what you want. What you want is that firewall. And you would think uh, right. of anywhere in the world, public broadcasting would be the place that it exists. But here we see maybe not so much. Well, and, you know, uh, the stations that have had the opportunity, and it, it, I'm not criticizing any station here because it is really, they first of all, all stations do wonderful, wonderful work. But secondly, you know, just, just getting the lights turned on every day is not easy in a lot of places. Um, but when they have the opportunity to get out from under uh, the public license, that really generally does um, make a big difference in terms of improving the situation. But that's, that's, not, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and this is just a really bad example. Uh, you know, you, you talked about a female uh, journalist, and there was, there was a, a thousand years ago, I wrote a story for NPR that the Carter White House hated, and um, they landed on me big time and went after me, and I, it scared me. It scared me to death. But the difference was is that Frank Mankiewicz was my boss, and he stood behind me, mm-hmm. and there was absolutely no way that the White House was going to get me because I had a, a very strong um, supporter and my and my boss. In this case, this reporter didn't even have that opportunity to have her boss back her up because his his you know licensor, the state, the university, just stepped it right in and told him he had no choice in the matter. Well, um, first of all, we're going to make a little transition here from uh, from that to Washington D.C. But before we do this, let me uh, mention the occasion which uh, enabled us to get Cokie Roberts to come on that sh- the show, and that is the YWCA Hartford region is hosting their annual twenty second annual in the company of women luncheon. Uh, Cokie Roberts will join a parade of greats. I've seen uh, Leslie Stahl speak there. I've seen Candace Bergen speak there, uh, and Cokie Roberts uh, I think fits in perfectly. It'll be Thursday. Uh, April 6th, that's of this week, obviously, at the Connecticut Convention Center from 11 to 2 p.m. I have no idea how many tickets are left or if there are any. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a tough ticket, but go find out. Let me just say to you, Colin, how excited I am to be coming because the the YWCA is a fabulous, fabulous organization and has been uh, for uh, many, many years. Um, The great civil rights champion, Dorothy Height, uh, told the story, she's now departed, uh, about back in 1946, right after World War II, when our troops fought in segregated units um, eight years before Brown versus Board of Education, the YWCA integrated. And um, she said it was really quite a battle, but uh, she laughed later because, of course, in 1963 with the big march on Washington, uh, the men, she says, these great humanitarians, fighters for rights, would not let her speak. They would not let a woman speak at the march on Washington. And she said it was easier to get the YWCA to accept blacks than it was to get these men to accept women. Hmm. Um, well, you're going to be one of the more well-backgrounded speakers that this luncheon uh, has has seen, but uh, I know you'll be great. Uh, a lot of people are looking forward to it. So let's, am I. let's turn our gaze to Washington, D.C., which you know, like few other people know it. Uh, it's uh, your career, but it's also very much in your uh, DNA. I-, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, one thought that I've started to have about maybe one of the problems that the Trump administration is having, and that has to do with staffing. Now, you know, you mentioned Jimmy Carter, you know, and it's certainly true that when Hamilton, Jordan, Jody Powell and all those people came through, came in, there was an initial thought, well, maybe that 
maybe that's not the best and the brightest, just a bunch of people that he kind of knows. And, and you know, when Clinton had Mac McClarty as his chief of staff initially, once again, you know, people thought, well, I mean, he's not like he scoured the whole country to get the uh, top person. Still, it does look as though the Trump administration has a unique problem with staffing. I, I, it seems as though, you know, you look at Bannon and Miller and Priebus, believe really, you know, except for Miller with a little bit of communications background, they're not people who really know government at any level or have worked at government at any level. And they're having trouble filling some of these second and third tier cabinet area positions. You just wonder, you know, whether they're staffed well enough to do what it is that they need to do. Well, it is um, uh, the it is the uh, overflow from the fact that Trump himself has never been in government. Mm. Uh, we've never had a president who's never been in either in government or in the military, and uh, that is, you know, that is a unique situation in American history. And so we're seeing uh, what that means. And you know, look, a whole lot of people voted for Donald Trump because he had never been in government, because they think that the that Washington is filled with elites that just um, just pat each other on the back and don't care about the American people. That's a very genuine feeling, and um, I think that uh, the problem that that they now have is if they want to answer the concerns of those people uh, who voted for Trump, they they need to have the wherewithal to do it, and um, and they the so far so far we haven't seen that that exists. Right, and now we have this peculiar spectacle. I mean, either Donald Trump is the first person really to understand and harness the untapped potential of the adult children of real estate developers to conduct, <laughs> uh, you know, national and foreign affairs, or Jared Kushner's role in this administration is so incredibly outsized and multifarious as to be. It w- would be impossible for the most accomplished government apparatchik in history to do all these things well that he's being asked to do. I, what do you make of it? He's, he's in Iraq well, today. I mean, he is in Iraq today. Um, Bobby Kennedy had a similar role, really, in the uh, Kennedy administration and was equally young. Uh, but <clears throat> the, uh, the the relationship between those brothers uh, was such that that was where um, Jack Kennedy really placed his trust. Um, and I think that's that's where we are. You know, uh, Donald Trump has not only not had to deal with a Congress, he's never had to deal with a board. You know, mm-hmm. most, most uh, chief executives have a board of directors that they have to contend with. Uh, but that has not been the case in a family business. And so uh, there's, there's nobody that's been around to be um, someone who is a check in some kind of way or an advisor in some kind of way. And so um, it's a family business where he relies on his family. And you're quite right. Uh, Jared Kushner seems to be uh, foremost among the family members, but uh, Ivanka Trump also very much uh, in that mix. So I think that, um, you know, at some point, I suspect that um, that. Trump will start to develop relationships with people here where he can get some advice. But I'll tell you, I've just come, Colin, from the memorial service for a very talented man named Richard Solomon, who was head of the Institute for Peace for a very long time, but started in Washington in the National Security Council in the Nixon administration um, because he was a China scholar and and served in you know administrations of of both stripes and the entire room full of people 
was was essentially the foreign policy establishment, uh, people who have um, served pres both presidents, uh, Democratic and Republican presidents, uh, been working uh, at the foreign relations committees, foreign affairs committees on the Capitol, working in uh, institutions in Washington that uh, specialize in foreign affairs. And I don't think there's a person in that room who knows Donald Trump. Now, again, that's what the voters wanted. They're mm. sick to death of the foreign policy establishment. I get that. But it does make it difficult to conduct foreign policy when you don't have anybody who's ever done it before. Well, you know, also, and, and here we can use our, uh, our the profound wisdom we've acquired over the years to look back. <laughs> and, and you know, you know, you mentioned Bobby Kennedy. So one thing that we know, and it wasn't figured out in the first 80 days. But one thing that we know is that post Bay of Pigs, one of the things that the Kennedy administration figured out was because of that Camelot aura, people were very reluctant to contravene JFK and sometimes would even like watch him very carefully at meetings. And if he nodded, if he smiled, you know, he didn't even have to say anything and people would interpret um, that incorrectly. And, and once they realized that that had happened and it had contributed to a kind of groupthink on Bay of Pigs, Bobby Kennedy's job became to be the person in the room to try to pick apart whatever it was that seemed to be the consensus, particularly if that consensus seemed to enjoy the favor of JFK. And I think and that was a very healthy trend and probably helped the Cuban Missile Crisis turn out the way it did. I don't think Jared couldn't. Sons-in-law typically are not like brothers, right? They don't right. have the same. They don't have the same power relationship. That's really the point. Um, you know, uh, your brother now, he was a younger brother, which always is is slightly different. But, um, but still, it's somebody you've grown up with, you've known all your life, um, that you have um, just shorthand with to, in ways of communicating, but also do have... Um, some almost an equal power relationship with a son-in-law, certainly not, and not a child. You know, uh, you are then um, you're the grown-up, and they're the child, and uh, that is a very different relationship. So yes, it, it's going to be uh, something that really is going to have to shake down to see who the who are the people who can say, you, you taught, brought up Mac McClarty, at least Mac McClarty was a good enough friend of Bill Clinton's that he could say, come on, Bill, get off it, right? There's nobody in that position in this White House. And that is a real danger for a president. I think the other thing that there isn't, and once again, you're uniquely poised to know about this. One, one thing that was said about the early Reagan administration was, I mean, a lot of them were newcomers to Washington, but they were surrounded by people who understood congressional process. Right. You know, there's a way in which literally a bill becomes a law, and it's a little bit more complicated than Schoolhouse Rock made it seem. And, and you really have to understand that in order to get your agenda accomplished. Once again, it feels like there's an expertise gap. Yes, there is. I mean, the and and actually Carter uh, was in the same position. He did not have people who knew the Hill well, and it showed. He had a terrible time getting things through. Uh, so it is, you know, it is it behooves a president to uh, if he if what his if what his desire is is to get something done, he needs the Congress to do that, like it or not. And uh, then it makes a certain amount of sense then to be able to work with the Congress in a way that, um, that the Congress responds to. President Trump clearly thought uh, on the health care bill 
that if he brought people into the White House and, and just sort of charmed them, and they did come back, many of them saying they had had pleasant conversations with him, but um, he did not in any way say or do anything that made them feel like they wanted to vote for the bill. And so, you know, that, that's a problem. <laughs> that is a problem. So we uh, just we were talking before we went on the air, uh, Koki Roberts asked, uh, anything happening on the news? Well, now something has happened on the news. This is the great thing about having Koki Roberts, too. She doesn't have to go away and study about it for 15 minutes. Uh, so we're being told by the Washington Post and AP that the Democrats do have enough votes to filibuster for Gorsuch. And make of that of what, what you want. I mean, absent an actual nose count, it still seems kind of speculative. But this is, this Koki, this is going to be an interesting week no matter what. And and certainly with a filibuster on Gorsuch, it, it can be undone by the so-called nuclear option. I suppose that it will be. But um, the, the Democrats seem ready to take that risk, right, of dying on the Hill over this particular nomination. What do you make yes. of that? Well, I think it, it's basically um, <clears throat> the reaction in the same way uh, that Donald Trump is uh, reacting to the people who said we're sick to death of Washington, we're sick to death of the elites, all of that. The Democrats on the Hill are getting the same kind of pressure uh, from their their voters, saying we're sick to death of you accommodating, not that there's been a lot of that. Um, we want you to resist, you know, uh, that's been the, the watchword. And um, and you need to just fight the Republicans. And, and the combination of the fact that they've got this tremendous pressure to do to fight and that there there remains this um, lingering and it will linger for a while um, anger about the Republican refusal to even hold a hearing for Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, makes it so that the Democrats, by and large, uh, feel like they, they don't have much of a choice here. Now, you know, what does that mean if the filibuster is abandoned on a Supreme Court justice, uh, which I think will be the case? Uh, I mean, if the ability to filibuster the so-called nuclear option is invoked, um, what does that mean for the Senate as a whole? We really don't know. Uh, I was listening to the the uh, nomination, the the committee, the Judiciary Committee, uh, arguing over the nomination this morning because I am a total nerd, and that's the kind of thing I listen to on the radio is the Judiciary Committee. But um, the fact is, is that it, they were speaking two different languages. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans might as well have been speaking, you know, one of them speaking Greek and the other one speaking uh, Serbo-Croatian. Uh, the, there just was not any communication, and, um, and that's really where we are. Oh, well, if the Democrats would really like to make a stand, uh, I think the best thing that they could possibly do was find an empty seat and get a Chuck Todd of NBC into it. Here's Chuck Todd talking to Mitch McConnell yesterday. You say we, uh, it's been litigated uh, last year, the Merrick Garland situation. For a lot of Senate Democrats, they're not done litigating this, including someone like Tom Carper, a Democratic senator yeah. who is not comfortable with the idea of filibustering, but believes yeah. Merrick Garland was mistreated. Again, what was wrong with allowing Merrick Garland to have an up or down vote? I already, t already told you, uh, you don't fill Supreme Court vacancies in the middle of a presidential election. That's what Joe Biden said back in 1992 so, when he so was chairman the of the policy? Judiciary Committee. Should that we be the knew policy? Exactly. 
Should that be the policy going forward? Are you prepared to pass a resolution that says, in election years, any Supreme Court vacancy and have it to be the sense of a Senate resolution that say no Supreme Court nominations will be considered in any even-numbered year? Is that where we're headed? Chuck, with all due respect, that's an absurd question. We were right in the middle of a presidential election year. Everybody knew that neither side had the shoe on the other foot would have filled it. All right, I want to get Cookie Roberts' reaction to that, but before I do, I want to say we have a pledge drive coming up, and we will be making the low, sinister chuckle of Mitch McConnell available as a ringtone for a pledge of $60 or more. Uh, so, well, and, and you might also be adding the bark of my dog, Ella, who seems to be wanting to be on the radio right now. What kind of dog and, is Ella? Ella is a chocolate lab. Now, oh. I used to have a basset hound named Abner, and Abner liked being on the radio so much that he would go, uh, he would find ways when I would put him far, far away from the microphone, he would still find ways to, to howl loud enough so that he was on the air. And I would go to, you know, some town covering a story, and I would be in a hotel, and I'd open the local shelter magazine, and there would be a picture of my dog, Abner, uh, <laughs> which would be an ad for the local radio station. And it really ticked me off, Colin, because <laughs> Abner didn't do anything. He just howled. <laughs> now, you know, I was the one working, but Abner got all the glory. Uh, my producers are texting in the names of their basset hounds. So Betsy Kaplan had one <laughs> named Louie, and Jonathan McNichol had a basset hound named Wilson. So uh, there um, you go. So were they on the radio? I don't think we've had any of them on the radio. And no. Abner also could open the refrigerator door and help himself to anything in it, including once a ten-pound ham. <laughs> so <laughs> he had many talents, none of which were helpful in terms of supporting the family. Well, you tell Ella she can bark her little head off. We don't care. Okay. So um, right. uh, you know, uh, you were talking about Greek versus. Serbo-Croatian, there is kind of a conversation like that going on about the Garland nomination, right? You hear Mitch yes. McConnell saying, yes. well, if the shoe were on the other foot, they would have done the same things to us. Right. And then you hear the Democrats, as you alluded to, Democrats and the people who are, in fact, urging the Democrats now saying, no, you guys never do stuff like that. You're always Charlie Brown running to come up, uh, coming up to uh, kick the football. And the Republicans are always Lucy pulling it away. Y you've got to stop being the victims. Well, and that's what the Democrats, that's what they're responding to. Uh, whether whether that's an accurate description or not, I would certainly uh, argue with. But mm. uh, but that is that is what they are responding to, is that perception. And uh, so in the debate this morning, you had... Uh, you had Dick Durbin saying, uh, this is, you know, it is going to change the Senate. I hate that. I, I love the Senate. I've spent a great deal of my life here. But, uh, but we simply cannot vote to confirm this judge. And you had John, John Cornyn of Texas saying, uh, it's not going to change the Senate. The, um, the legislative filibuster is very different from the appointments filibuster. And uh, there's a reason for it on legislation. And like that, you know. <laughs> and so it's, what, what's going to happen? Well, it's likely to change the Senate. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on where you sit. But if you sit in a place where right now you love being in the majority and, and having the majority be able to have power, that's great. But you could likely to be in the minority sometime and be very sorry to have given up this tool. Nobody, by the way, was more eloquent on this subject than your former Senator Lowell Weicker, um, who often 
use the filibuster, whether he was in the min- whether his party was in the majority or the minority, um, to uh, protect what various rights uh, to to filibuster against um, uh, the ability, the desire on the part of the uh, Senate at one point to get rid of busing, things like that, and. Um, you know, it is a it is a minority protection device, and um, getting rid of it altogether uh, means much less protection for the minority. And each party is going to find itself in the minority at some point. Lil Wecker uh, still listens to this show, so I may be getting Good. a phone call well, in the afternoon. <laughs> well, tell him hello. You know what he does when he calls you? He doesn't say hello. He just starts talking. Like your phone rings, well, you answer it, and he goes, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'll tell you what I think I'm going to do. It's like well, kind of like that. Um, but but he, he was very, very eloquent and, in my view, wise on this subject. He'll be thrilled to hear that. Um, Koki Roberts, I've exceeded the time limit that we promised you, but this is so much fun. So we'll be doing it every Monday from now on. Um, <laughs> but meanwhile, if you can't wait till next Monday when Koki's on, you can go on Thursday to the Connecticut Convention Center. You get a ticket first, obviously, from the YWCA Hartford region. She'll be uh, d- uh, speaking at the 22nd annual In the Company of Women luncheon. I've been to them many times. They are fun. This one will be funnest of all. This has been really fun for me, Koki Roberts, too. Thanks. Great to be with you, Colin. And Thanks. So much. Give Ella a pat on the head for me. I sure will. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. And we'll take a break and we're going to come back. And we already talked about the Kennedys. Already once we talked about the Kennedys. We're going to talk more about the Kennedys with Annie Linsky from the Boston Globe. All right, we have a very interesting topic here in the second segment, but let me tell you also what's going to happen in the third segment, or maybe what's not going to happen in the third segment. In the third segment, I will um, uh, permit and encourage phone calls. I don't really know what I want to talk about, which is like so against the rules of the public radio host handbook. Like never say you don't know what you want to talk about. But uh, so like it'll be like a chef's surprise. Either either you callers by calling 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Will tell me what it is you want to talk about, or I will talk about something that you may or may not want to hear me talk about. Anyway, that's the plan for the C. But we're very excited about our plan for the B. Uh, that's what, where we are right now, the B segment of this show. Uh, that's our term of art for it. Uh, and Annie Linsky is joining us right now. Uh, she's national political reporter for the Boston Globe. Over the weekend, uh, she um, reported on a new wave, a new wave of Kennedys. But before we let Annie talk, let's hear how this sounded. Do you have that clip ready? In 1960. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. That was from Vaughn Meter's famous First Family album, Vote for the Kennedy of Your Choice, But Vote. Uh, joining us now, Andy Linsky, writing about the new wave of Kennedys cresting across the country. We've got a little part of that wave right here in Connecticut. But uh, Andy Linsky, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good to be here. And so tell us about this. This is, at minimum, a three-part wave. So let's hear about its parts. 
Yeah, so um, first of all, that clip was brilliant that you started with, um, and, and it is quite appropriate for this next wave of Kennedys. Um, the, the most the most prominent Kennedy who is who is um, running for office for the sort of the biggest position right now is Chris Kennedy, um, and he is um, running for governor of, of um, Illinois. Um, he's not a very well-known Kennedy, but he's got the sort of the biggest ambition at the moment. Um, and then you have um, Joe Kennedy III, who's a congressman from um, from Massachusetts, and he has gotten quite a bit of attention lately in Washington because he gave a very powerful speech um, against Donald Trump's uh, health care plan that was part of part of a sort of a, a a number of powerful speeches, but his really stood out and, and was helpful in defeating that plan. Um, and then the, the third one is a closer to Connecticut, um, Ted, Teddy Kennedy Jr., who um, is a state senator in Connecticut, and um, I hear he is mulling a run um, if Malloy does not decide to stand for re-election. Um, so there's three of them, and, and one of the thing that's, things that's interesting to me is that you really could have two – States with two different Kennedys on the um, governor's ticket in 2018 because both Chris um, uh, and Teddy Jr., who are, who are cousins, would, put, would potentially both be on the tickets in, in Illinois and also in um, Connecticut. So, Annie, you know, you're uh, with the Boston Globe, which makes it difficult for you to have any perspective on the Kennedys. But you've worked in other <laughs> you've, you've worked in other places. So you've uh, you've been around the country, uh, and so you know. Th- I, I mean, uh, let me just go back in time. So for my mother, my mother was a Goldwater Republican, but the Kennedy cachet was such uh, in, in during the 1960s that my mother couldn't resist it. Um, that it transcended ideology, uh, and, and it, it often meant that. I, because of the, the, the dynastic quality and, and the glamour of it, um, that people who would be ill-disposed to vote for these candidates, whether it was um, uh, John or Bobby or Teddy from that generation, would be ideologically ill-disposed, would overcome that somehow, <laughs> because after all, this was a Kennedy and Kennedys are magic. Um, but I'm not sure that that necessarily obtains. It may obtain probably here in New England a little bit more than it does in other places, but I'm not sure how much it obtains at all. What do you what, what do you make of that? You know, I think that um, I think you're right. I don't think that that same sort of magic quality comes with their name. Um, but I do think that the name is still a nas- nationally recognized name. And in politics, you know, I mean, it still is you know, name recognition is incredibly important. Um, if you look at either Illinois or Connecticut, for that matter, um, the the Kennedy name, and I think the question is always, is that a real Kennedy or just another Kennedy? Um, and so I think that once there, it's established that, you know, the Kennedy who is running for office is a quote-unquote real Kennedy um, from the Kennedy family, You know, that name is still, like, you automatically remember the name. So I don't think it, like, gets you into office, but I I think there's certainly a leg up. And and I can, you know, I I was quite surprised and delighted by the amount of – time that Chris Kennedy spent with me for the story in Chicago, in Illinois. Um, but, you know, part of the reason he did that is because his consultants are telling him that a story that's just pointing out over and over again that he's a Kennedy is going to be good for his race. So they're, they understand it. And so they, they seem to think it's positive. And then particularly um, their pollsters, they've pulled this, of course, but their polling is showing them that a particular 
particularly among the older Democratic voters um, that will come out and vote disproportionately in primaries, that um, that name still does have some of that magic. And um, that's what both um, Teddy and Chris would – the first hurdle they would need to clear, of course, um, in gubernatorial races would be that, that the primary and getting the nomination of the Democratic Party. Right. I, it's still a very powerful trope. Or, or metaphor in the party, if you think of 2008, when Ted Kennedy Sr. kind of touched uh, Barack Obama with his magic wand and conferred right. upon him a, a kind of blessing that really did seem kind of significant. And certainly the notion of being Kennedy-esque uh, is still, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, for example, Gary Hart, with a fa- famous picture of him with his hand in his jacket pocket, exactly the way the Kennedys did it. But I mean, here in Connecticut, we've got John Larson, who's, who's a, uh, a congressman who kind of looks like he might be sort of a distant cousin of the Kennedys and <laughs> Dick Blumenthal looks like sort of a Kennedy who went through one of those food drying machines that they they sell on television. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, you know, it's and, and not only does that trope still have some power, but part of the reason for that is that not enough has come along to replace it, and and right. similarly, not enough bench strength has come along to replace it. I mean, Chris Murphy from Connecticut will probably run for president in twenty twenty, sure. but it, it isn't it isn't a huge crowded field. There isn't the equivalent of the sixteen crazy candidates we saw for the Republicans last time, right? Yeah, I think I mean in the um, particularly on the state level. I mean in Illinois, there there will be some other big names that Chris Kennedy will have to contend with. I mean Connecticut. I mean you know you have a question of the media market far better than I do, but you it's still pretty fractured. And so to spend to have to spend money in some place like you know the Fairfield County area Mm -hmm. um, to 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 just introduce yourself. Is, qu- is quite expensive and, and, and quite time-consuming. Um, and at least Ted Kennedy Jr., I mean, goodness, like it's a name that everybody is going to at least remember. It doesn't mean you're going to vote for him, but at least it's not, you know, it, he, he, he does get a piece of the, the puzzle finished by just the fact that, that voters are going to remember his name. Although, you know, unlike the previous waves of Kennedy's, I think um, you know everybody that I talked to for my story, like including the Kennedy family members, acknowledged that it's it it's just not even going to be close to enough to just be Kennedy. It's going to have to be Kennedy plus you're doing a good job, and that makes common sense. But I think this is a family that's used to being able to just sort of waltz in the door. Right. I, I will say that I've gotten to know Ted Kennedy Jr. a little bit. Um, I don't mm. say this about politicians very often, but I, I kind of like him. And he actually mm. seems like a relatively nice and thoughtful person in a way. Uh, you know, he, he stayed away from politics for a long time, I think yeah. partly because he knew what it was like to grow up to be the boy at his father's side. Didn't want his kids to, to kind of have that role until they were maybe a, a little bit older. He, he seems to understand both the pluses and the minuses uh, of political candidacy in a way that that's kind of appealing to me as some perspective on the whole thing. You get the feeling that if this didn't happen, he'd be OK. He does, I will say, have hanging over him a little bit. Um, uh, an elections enforcement question here. There's some question about whether the state's citizen election program was I, I circumvened. I don't know exactly how to put it, but it looks like they kind of found a loophole, maybe a way to get some money that ordinarily would have been forbidden money into his campaign. However, questions of that kind hang over a lot of other potential gubernatorial candidates, including the aforementioned Dan Beloy. So it's uh, it's doubtful that that Ted Kennedy's specific cloud would cause him that much trouble. So um, so as you look at all, all three of these. Uh, 
uh, I know the Ted situation uh, well. I don't know that. I mean, would Joe Kennedy in in Massachusetts be somebody who might push himself into the field in 2020? Is he that that kind of politician? You know, I think with Joe Kennedy um, the third in Massachusetts. The the path for him, I mean, his name is certainly like mentioned a lot in Washington as a as a very good um, as a, as a possible like, vice presidential candidate somewhere along the lines. And I can see him being on short lists in 2020, depending on who the Democratic nominee is, um, because he's got you know he in, in addition to having the sort of the like the just the look of a Kennedy, um, he's done a very good job of you know, putting, keeping his head down for his first two terms in Congress and just, you know, just doing the kind of like getting work done, not doing a lot of national press, um, you know, getting to know his district really well. He, um, he actually opposed Obama a few times on trade related, um, not only Obama, but he, he, um, he opposed his own, um, I believe aunt Carolyn Kennedy, who is the, um, uh, ambassador to Japan at the time on um, Obama's uh, uh, Pacific trade deal. Um, so he's he's but he's kept those fights kind of close. I mean they haven't he hasn't been sort of the the, the leader of that opposition. Um, so he so he hasn't made enemies in within the Democratic Party. Um, and and then but what what we've found at the Globe we watch him quite carefully is that this year he is acting a little bit differently and and doing the you know stepping out on national issues and accepting the national spotlight in a way that he didn't and he purposely did the first two terms in Congress. I mean, you know, the first two terms in Congress, he, you know, I remember sitting down to meet with him and the only sort of guidance that I would get from his people were he just does not like to mention that he's a Kennedy. Mm. He doesn't want to talk about being a Kennedy, you know, and it was sort of like you you knew that this is like one topic he would try to steer away from. Um, But that that has shifted this year for him, um, and 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 he's doing quite well. I mean, his the speech that he gave um, opposing Obama or excuse me opposing the Trump care the Trump replacement was a viral moment. You know, he got more than 10 million views, um, and that's highly unusual for him. Well, this is all going to be very interesting to watch uh, unfold on all three of these fronts. And we are lucky to have you, Annie Linsky, national political reporter for the Boston Globe, to do this. Uh, You've got to go uh, get a good seat uh, in front of the office TV for the Red Sox game. They started two. Uh, I know I know how these things work. Actually, the, the Spicer briefing is what I need a, need a good seat, seat for. Uh, well, uh, that's, you know, likely to have just as many brushback pitches uh, as the Red Sox game. All right, Annie Linsky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And let's do it again sometime very soon. So, yeah, I, it's going to be Chef's surprise after this. You, you want to tell me what to talk about? You want to tell me what to talk about? Then you call 860-275-7266. You tell me what to talk about. 860-275-7266. Otherwise, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. I, I don't know why I started talking that way. All the price
All right. So uh, several things. First of all, um, we have about eight minutes left here, seven minutes left. So if you would like uh, to undertake a topic or like me to undertake a topic, you can call 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Now, Wolfie is off all week. That's why you didn't hear an intro. That's why you didn't hear any thank yous right now. I'll do the thank yous today. Uh, and uh, so uh, the show is produced by Betsy Kaplan-Kennedy. Uh, and uh, on the board today, we have Jonathan Shriver, Kennedy McNichol, and Ali Onassis uh, is answering the phones. Uh, and so that's who you'll talk to if you do call in. Oh, people are calling in. Ooh, I'm not going to get to talk about what I plan to talk about. That's fine, though. I'll be interested to see what, what they want to talk about. And I want to say tomorrow's show is going to be about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, often regarded as this pivotal moment in the history of rock music when the notion of what a rock album could be radically changed. We'll talk about whether that's true or not. But we've got all kinds of other fun stuff uh, coming up for you uh, this week as well. And then on Friday, we'll be doing the Nose in New Haven. That's always fun. That would be a little New Haven flavor to what we do. So anyway, um, what I said was uh, that uh, people could call 860-275-7266. I, I mean, I, do, I did have this whole speech I was going to uh, give about health care uh, and about health care reform, but uh, I don't, it's not necessary. I perhaps will be performing it uh, at the Shakespeare Theater at Stratford instead. Uh, all right. Here's a Ro- Barbara from Rocky Hill. You're on the air. What do you want to talk about? Well, I I'm, I'm always enjoy listening to you, and I don't want you to be lonely. So I called to say I really thought it was very interesting, the, the show that you did with the Trump voters. Yep. I would love to have them back now to hear what they have to say. <laughs> That's a really good idea, actually. Yes, I, I think that is a really good idea. I don't know if we get the same, get this exactly the same group back, but we could we could do that. And I would also say, and I think this might be a little bit. I mean, part of it is well. Let me just ask you this: partly, you're curious to know whether any of the well, debacles might be loading the question a little bit, but whether any of the things that you've seen unfold since the election are, are troubling to people who identified as Trump supporters. Is that one of your that's exactly it. And, and it also, for me, I would really like to sit down and talk to them personally because I, I still don't get it. Yeah. Um, well, I th- one thing, one failure of journalism, I think, in this past election was the failure to go out there and figure this stuff out in real time. I noticed that Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times is doing his columns now. He's r- running around the country. I think he was in Oklahoma this weekend or something. And, and that's smart, but it's a little bit late. I, it was sort of interesting how some of the better reporting that I read during the actual campaign was by novelists like George Saunders and David Eggers, each of whom went on the road and just really went out there, went to the rallies, talked to the people at the rallies, tried to get kind of an understanding uh, of who those people were and what their concerns are uh, and and tried to get it Uh, more locally. We had a guy named Rinker Buck on who was uh, he'd built a recreation of a 19th century flatboat and had been going down some of the major rivers, tying up and talking to people and getting kind of a sense of that. I think when you do talk to people outside your immediate circle, you know, you, you get past that, you know, everybody I know thinks. Everybody I know thinks is a highly unreliable metric, as we've discovered. So, yeah, good idea, Barbara. Uh, Betsy Kaplan was the one who put that show together. Uh, I'm sure uh, it would just, you know... <laughs> I'm sure she'd love to talk to those people again. That's what I'm trying to say. Here's Philip uh, in West Hartford. Hi, Philip. You're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, Colin. Hi. Um, it's uh, my first time calling in, and uh, it's nice to make your acquaintance. <laughs> nice to make yours too, Philip. So I'm interested in um, 
uh, just air pollution in general. Uh, I see that um, in our society, it uses a car for everything uh, on the street. And uh, staying warm, listening to the radio, people are always running their cars and idling it, and cars are quite ubiquitous in our society. Um, now, I appreciate the convenience of the car, but I think what uh, people have lost sight of is um, the emissions are still quite bad, and they're, they build up. They're very toxic. They're bad for you. Um, so I'll just talk about a little bit of the problem with not too much detail. Um, there was a uh, two things happened in January. Um, there was a report that came out from Canada where they saw that People within 50 meters of a high traffic area were 7% more likely to develop dementia. <laughs> so there's one. And then, uh, and actually, then the, the city of London, England, uh, they put out that they found their air quality to be even worse than Beijing. And that was on account of the, uh, oh, what was it? It was the, uh, the, uh, wood-burning stoves and the fact that they have a higher concentration of diesel uh, diesel vehicles there. So th these are kind of wake-up calls to me. Um, yes, uh, Philip, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I, I th I'm glad you're bringing this up, and you probably know that Trump has already announced that he will uh, undertake a review of the so-called CAFE standards. Uh, those are the standards for fuel emissions uh, in American cars. Uh, he thinks he's doing the auto industry a big favor about this. There's a way in which, you know, our we, we imprint as a society like baby ducks on certain things. And one of the things we've imprinted on in a way that most other societies haven't is the automobile and the notion of one person in a car going somewhere, right? We, we still think that's kind of the ideal way to travel. We don't like other things as much. But ultimately, one way or another, that's going to have to change. Now, the good news is an awful lot can be done at the state and local level. Mike Bloomberg has been uh, writing about that. It doesn't all have to be federal. It's better if it is federal. But also, I mean, transportation will change. And if climate change gets as bad as it appears to be getting, you know, we may have to make gasoline a lot more expensive. That's the Andrew Sullivan model. You know, what's been done in Europe, make gasoline so expensive that people use mass transit. But then you have to build the mass transit. I think we're done. I think we're out of time here. This has been loads of fun. And I'm sorry to anybody who didn't get on the air. Maybe I should just do this from time to time. Just say, just tell me what you want to talk about. Listen to the people. Listen to the people. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who helped out with today's show. Get ready for our Sergeant Pepper show tomorrow. You'd like to think about something other than what we've been talking about anyway. So why not, you know, Sergeant Pepper?